from Turkey Hill Road in Rockland County to Cranberry Lake in Rochester, from Pumpkin Hollow Road in Wells, right here to the Potato House of Brooklyn, New York. It's 5 p.m. on Thanksgiving Eve in the five boroughs and across New York State, so it's time for Max and Murphy, your interview and call-in show about the policies, politics, and people of the city and the state of New York. Ben, how are you? <laughs> You've outdone yourself. Um, I'm good. I'm good. I'm excited about Thanksgiving, but I'm happy to be here talking some New York politics and policy before we have the holiday. There's so much going on uh, and lots to discuss, and, and we'll be getting into our guest for today. But uh, how are you doing? I'm good. And in the way of formal introductions, in case anybody is new to the show, I'm Jarrett Murphy from CityLimits.org, sitting with my partner, Ben Max of GothamGazette.com. And uh, yeah, for a pre-holiday week, um, there's been quite a bit of buzz in the city on a few different fronts. Yeah, I think at least for me, the putting aside last week's sort of botched snowstorm, which certainly does, has gotten some attention, maybe deserves a little bit more about why the city wasn't able to more nimbly adapt when the forecast looked like it was out of whack. Um, but putting that aside, uh, the two big stories really of this week are the continued sort of fallout and reaction to this Amazon deal coming to Queens and the governor and the mayor announcing um, this deal with Amazon and the pushback to it and the analysis of it. And there's a lot to deconstruct there. And then the mayor firing his Department of Investigation commissioner, um, the one appointment of the mayor that has to be approved by the city council that tells you something about the position and the stakes there. And this is the commissioner and the department that investigates the rest of city government, especially the mayoral administration. And that's the Department of Investigations and uh, Mayor de Blasio with cause firing that commissioner in sort of an unheard of move that many are also questioning, even though he had some cause and some justification. So two two big storylines that we've been following this week. What's some thoughts on at least one of those from you? Uh, I think that the uh, DOI story is fascinating because really some of the perhaps the biggest story for Bill de Blasio over the past year is something that came largely out of a DOI investigation, which is the lead paint in NYCHA uh, story, the question about whether uh, Shola Olatie, the former uh, chairwoman of NYCHA, falsified, uh, knowingly falsified um, documents she presented to the federal government about whether the city was abiding by rules on testing for lead paint, DOI investigation figuring very prominently in that story, and perhaps the biggest challenge to um, to de Blasio over the past year. So the firing of the DOI commissioner is, is fascinating. And of course, I think the question is what comes next. I think that's a huge question. He has uh, made himself available for a city council hearing, has suggested that might be interesting to do. I don't know if that's something he'll be taken up on. But that I don't think be, it is. I think the city council speaker, Corey Johnson, has has indicated he's not going to take him up on that. But we'll see. Yeah. It, you know, one thing to keep in mind on this, and this is not to exculpate or blame anybody, but, you know, on this and on some other things where de Blasio has faced um, serious, serious questions. There is the question of what occurred with other DOI commissioners. I mean, Mark Peters' allegation is that de Blasio directly and then through through um, subordinates tried to influence 
multiple investigations that were going to be critical of the administration. And it's certainly unseemly. It seems shocking. What we don't know is what kind of communication existed in the past between City Hall and DOI. How independent was it? And just an irony I'll close with is that when Mark Peters was appointed, the concern was that he and de Blasio were all too chummy. Um, That may have been the case then, but it certainly wasn't uh, uh, by the end of things. Right. You almost think now that it was uh, doubly a mistake for the mayor to appoint his 2013 campaign treasurer to this position. And that nomination to the city council was met with a lot of skepticism, although everybody except, I believe, two city council members voted for confirming Peters. But it was almost like Peters came in determined to show that he was going to be independent and put the screws to the de Blasio administration. And that's what you what you want in the DOI commissioner, except you do want to make sure that that commissioner, like any other but especially perhaps that commissioner, like other law enforcement officials, and that's what the DOI commissioner is, um, abides by the law themselves, doesn't cross any lines, and certainly like any commissioner doesn't abuse their power, et cetera. And there were some things that were found to have occurred under Peters's watch um, that were the misconduct that I mentioned uh, that you know is some cause for de Blasio, although the report that was produced about uh, this whistleblower cl- claim around Peters, that report called for some remedy measures that did not include firing. So it's not like this independent uh, report on Peter's behavior had said to the mayor, you know, there is just cause for him to go. There were some other measures and apologies that Peter's had to to partake in, and he did, and admitted some wrongdoing, but not necessarily rising to the level of being dismissed. So perhaps a topic to return to another time. There'll be more to to discuss on that. As far as the Amazon deal, let's put that aside as well. We're going to get to that later in the show. I think we both have a lot of thoughts on that, and our second guest today will help us break down some of the Amazon deal. But for today's show, we are Moving ahead with a joint Gotham Gazette City Limits project called Agenda 2019. Uh, We've talked a little bit about it on past episodes of this show, but uh, in case you missed it, we're working together post-election day to really set the stage for the 2019 policy discussion at the state and city levels. And we're deconstructing that, looking at a variety of issues. Uh, Last week was Criminal Justice Week, and we had an interview on the show that fit in with that with Assemblymember Latrice Walker talking about bail reform and other things. And we published a lot of different things at City Limits and Gotham Gazette on criminal justice. This week, we're into transit week. And so we're looking at a lot of different transportation and transit issues, even in a holiday shortened week. We're, we're doing a lot on that subject. And, and today's show will also fit into that. Yes, exactly. We're, we're speaking actually on what I think is the uh, highest volume travel day of the year, uh, maybe not necessarily for New York City transit, but around us certainly occurring. And so we're joined today or first today by uh, a guest who's going to talk about the debate about how to fund uh, the MTA going forward that is going to be playing out in Albany in 2019. So we welcome Alex Matheson, who is the campaign director of Move New York. Alex, welcome to WBAI. Hey, terrific to be here. Nice to talk to you guys again. And uh, uh, congratulations on the move to WBAI. WBAI, I'm a big fan, and uh, that's a nice uh, nice move for you guys. So Thanks. Congratulations. Thank, thank you very much. Yes, Alex was a guest with us when we were doing this as the Max and Murphy podcast, so it's good to have him back uh, on the airwaves. And so, uh, Alex, tell us about Move New York for those who haven't uh, heard of that before or, or need a refresher. What is the what is the movement and uh, what is what is on your agenda for 2019? 
Well, you won't be surprised to learn that uh, on my agenda, first on my agenda for 2019 is to make sure that Albany finishes the job it started uh, with some success uh, last March in passing a comprehensive uh, congestion pricing uh, plan. Uh, we continue to maintain that congestion pricing is uh, second to none in terms of the options available uh, to Albany to come up with a, uh, a solution for funding the MTA and in particular funding New York City Transit President's uh, plans, Andy Byford's plan, the Fast Forward plan, which is a, uh, a very sophisticated, smart strategy for how to basically upgrade and modernize uh, our subway system and our bus system uh, to kind of 21st century standards in the next five to 10 years rather than the 50 years that the MTA has been claiming that it would uh, take in order to modernize the system. So if we're serious and New Yorkers are serious for getting beyond the, uh, the current subway crisis we have, we have no choice but to find a new source of sustainable revenue. Uh, and the only uh, uh, viable option on the table at this moment is congestion pricing. And it has the added benefit above and beyond any other potential uh, revenue source of also curbing our traffic uh, in and around the central business district of, of New York City. So it has a lot of advantages, which I'm happy to talk about. Why do you care about this? I mean, tell tell listeners and tell us, uh, you know, how did you get involved in this movement? Why do, why do you care about it? Why have you dedicated so much of your time and resources to it? Um, and, it, you know, if you can, uh, I assume you would, but in case you weren't going to, if you could put it in sort of the context of the long game here around this debate over congestion pricing. Yeah. Well, I mean, the good news is, is back in the you know 80s, uh, when the MTA was a total mess, there was graffiti all over the uh, uh, the subways, and there were track fires regularly, and uh, and the you know um, de- um, derailings, etc. Uh, and the, the system was at its kind of nadir. Uh, Dick Ravitch uh, came in and basically rescued the MTA, and the smart thing he did is he created a, a five-year. Uh, capital planning program to basically ensure that there were substantial resources available to the MTA to not only maintain a state of good repair, but to make the kind of improvements over time uh, to keep the system kind of up to date and working well and reliable. Unfortunately, over many years and many governors and and mayors, uh, that source of of funding for the MTA has declined uh, over time in real terms, uh, and that has caused what we've, uh, the crisis we have today. You know, advocates have been warning about this crisis since, you know, at least 10 years ago, saying, listen, if we don't start to put real money into the MTA, uh, we're going to start to see the failure, the kinds of failures and the kinds of lack of reliability and, and danger even. Uh, that we saw back in the uh, 70s and 80s. So, lo and behold, not surprised, our, our prediction unfortunately came true, and the MTA is a complete mess again. We started two years ago with the summer of hell. Uh, this past year wasn't much better. They're making some incremental improvements uh, at the margins, which is terrific, uh, with the subway uh, rescue plan that they funded uh, last uh, year or earlier this year. Um, but that isn't enough. According to Andy Byford, who is responsible for having fixed the London and the Toronto uh, transit systems, uh, so has been hailed as, as our potential savior here. 
he has done the analysis and has estimated that it's going to cost roughly $40 billion, some say as much as $60 billion, in order to get the MTA transit system, that's our, primarily our subways and buses, uh, back into a state of good repair and also you know, using the kinds of technology that other cities around the globe uh, commonly use uh, that we're still uh, way behind on. So, uh, you know, the, 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 to kind of put it in real terms for New Yorkers, uh, New Yorkers uh, are have been suffering very badly. Uh, people are having a hard time getting to work on time. Uh, employers are frustrated because of their, their productivity is going down because people are late to work. People are having a harder time getting access to jobs and job interviews and educational opportunities and just people are beyond frustrated uh, and you know the only good news or silver lining in a crisis like this is that it's often what it takes to get uh, elected officials to make the hard choices and it's never an easy thing for an elected official to ask some uh, member of their constituency to chip in a little bit more to make sure we've got infrastructure that works but that's what's required here uh, and that's why you know we care so passionately about this and again as I said before unlike any other particular potential revenue source, and again, none are on a table that are being taken uh, too seriously in terms of viability, political viability, uh, the advantage of congestion pricing is you get the additional benefit of significantly reducing traffic, uh, both inside the central business district, which is essentially Manhattan south uh, to the financial, south of 60th Street, to the financial district, but also in the communities in upper Manhattan and and Queens and Brooklyn uh, around the the CBD, which will also benefit from lower traffic. Alex, uh, you mentioned that this was a conversation about congestion pricing that, that does date back 10 years to the Bloomberg administration. And there was talk even earlier in the Bloomberg years of, uh, I guess, a different form of that, which is to toll the East River bridges during the post 9-11 fiscal crisis. I think that was an option put on the table. But so congestion pricing has been around as a concept uh, in discussion for several years. And so I guess we come down to what does that system look like for you? What is what is Move New York advocating? Where would the toll be? What would they look like? When would they be in place? What do we know about the the system that we're kind of debating and advocating for here? Well, the Move New York plan, which was developed by myself and Sam Schwartz and Charles Helmroff and a whole coalition of uh, of advocacy groups as well, you know, with great input from elected officials and community groups and labor and business across the region, um, that became the model, and that was released in 2015. But at this point, the, the, the kind of standard bearer, if you will, for congestion pricing uh, is the fixed NYC plan uh, that was proposed by the, the governor's panel on congestion pricing last January. And essentially that would impose a surcharge on all trucks and uh, cars entering the central business district of Manhattan, which is, again, 60th Street South to the financial district, um, at at places where they're not currently being uh, charged now. So if you come across 60th Street from the north, you would be charged. It's all electronic tolling, uh, no gates, no toll booths, no delays. Uh, And then if you were coming uh, across a couple of the East River bridges, uh, you would not be told on the bridges themselves, but you would be told on the off-ramps if you were heading into the the street system of the Central Business District. Uh, If, for instance, you were actually using one of the bridges like the Brooklyn Bridge or the uh, Queensboro Bridge just to get access to the FDR Drive going north, you wouldn't actually pay a toll under the Fix NYC plan. Uh, so that's essentially the, the nature of it. Uh, the idea is to simply match the existing charges that are being uh, 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 charged at the Queens Midtown Tunnel 
and the Brooklyn Battery Tunnel. Um, and then to, excuse me, there's a little bit of a noise here. Hold on for a sec. So I think one of the things, though, that Alex mentioned that's interesting in the Fix NYC versus the Move New York plan, and this is something that got quite a few people's attention, including Mayor de Blasio, who's continued to be very skeptical about congestion pricing but has gotten warmer, is not tolling the bridges but putting it as a cordon toll for entering uh, you know, the central business district. So basically, as Alex said, allowing cars to head up the FDR drive and avoid a toll – for some reason, you know, that was appealing to some people, including the mayor. I suppose it makes something of a difference to, to some drivers, but I don't I'm not quite I haven't been quite certain why that, that would persuade someone to back congestion pricing who who wasn't behind it before. But that is a well, bit, that I, is a different. Yeah, no, that is a difference. And I, I think it is meaningful for some people. For some for some people, there was something symbolically that they didn't like about tolling the actual bridges themselves. Uh, and this way, if you're not actually entering the most congested parts of the central business district, i.e. the streets that make up the central business district, uh, you would be you know, free to kind of go on your way and, and then not be charged. So that's one difference between the fixed NYC plan and the Move New York plan before it. You know, another difference, but this is something that I, I anticipate will be back on the table in the, in the final negotiation, if not before, is the Move New York plan uh, thought if you're really going to do good congestion pricing in a fair and accurate way, you also have to lower tolls on the bridges in the outer parts of the city, like the Verrazano or the Trogs Neck of the Whitestone, uh, where you don't have as much congestion and you don't have the same number of transit uh, uh, options uh, that you do closer to the central business district. So I anticipate, and I know the governor has expressed support for the idea in the past, that there will be some kind of toll relief uh, as, part of a, as a part of a final package. Now, I'm not the one who's going to be uh, deciding what that uh, ultimate package looks like. That's going to be up to the governor and to the legislature. But I would be surprised that that's not at least a serious part of the conversation, some kind of toll relief for, for drivers coming in from Long Island uh, and uh, Brooklyn and Queens, the outer parts of Brooklyn and Queens and so on, who might have to cross, say, two toll facilities uh, in order to get to the central business district. So you mentioned the governor and the legislature, and I'm curious, tell us what that landscape looks like. The election has passed. We know who's going to be in Albany. We know what they said and didn't say during the campaign on this and other issues. Uh, How do you feel you are in terms of getting the vote you need to support congestion pricing? What kind of a debate you think is going to roll out? What do you think the the timing of that will be? What What does the picture in Albany look like to you now a few weeks after the election? Well, I think it's 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 improving uh, uh, as we speak. Uh, you know, we have a lot of advantage this time around uh, that we didn't have back in March. And, and, and by the way, I should say uh, the legislature and the governor did have some success in in, in enacting part of the Move New York uh, congestion pricing plan by in, in, uh, creating the surcharge on for hire vehicles within the taxi zone of Manhattan. So that was a first step. But to be honest, if you're going to do congestion pricing properly, you have to charge the trucks and the uh, uh, cars, the private vehicles as well, because that's the way you're really going to put a dent in traffic. And that's the way, therefore, the for hire vehicles and others driving in and around the central business district will see a, a, a significant reduction in uh, in traffic, and that means more fares for taxi drivers and for you know uh, you know taxis and, and so on. So, um, as to the politics of this, uh, so we have the advantage 
this time around of having a governor who's you know 100 uh, percent committed to it uh, in terms of everything he said and seems uh, quite committed to congestion pricing as the leading option for how to fund the MTA. That's a huge difference that we haven't had in the past. Uh, we also have a crisis, as I mentioned before, and that has put a lot of pressure on Albany as a whole, including the legislature, uh, on the fact that they have to do something. They cannot leave Albany this year uh, without having come up with a substantial funding package to rescue the MTA and to rescue, you know, average New Yorkers who are suffering mightily. Um, the changes in the Senate, I think, have actually been on, on the whole very helpful. You know, one can debate about whether a Republican or a Democratic-controlled Senate is uh, uh, to our greater advantage or not, and for reasons that are too complicated to get into, uh, uh, given the time we have. But the very good news, I think, is that not only did the Senate uh, come up with a very strong majority, uh, sorry, the, Dem- the Democrats come up with a very strong majority, but I think very importantly, uh, the, the the half a dozen or so folks who challenged various IDC uh, members and won uh, are very progressive. They tend to be younger, and they almost to a person have already come out and embraced congestion pricing in an unequivocal uh, way. And I think that they are going to be very important uh, kind of advocates and messengers in the Senate conference uh, uh, on behalf of congestion pricing. And I think they're going to have uh, more influence uh, normally than, uh, than a freshman incoming class would have just because of the movement in general uh, of the Democratic Party across the, across the country uh, to a more progressive agenda. So I think those are real advantages we have. Um, and we have an incredible grassroots operation led by the Riders Alliance and many other grassroots organizations uh, based out in Brooklyn and Queens and elsewhere uh, that are really working to mobilize riders and mobilize uh, and tap into the rage that riders feel towards the MTA, towards Albany, uh, for not for letting the system fall apart. And I think that anger is going to be very useful to us uh, come January when, when the uh, legislature and the governor start to look at a specific plan and debate the particulars. I think that's a pretty good overview of the lay of the land politically. I mean, I don't think there's really much there um, that I would quibble with. I do have a, a question for you about where this plan heads. But first, uh, folks listening, you're listening to Max and Murphy on WBAI. We're joined by Alex Matheson of Move New York, a coalition that has advocated for a congestion pricing plan and put forward a plan for uh, for the last few years and is now uh, looking to move ahead with congestion pricing in the new year, which the governor as Alex said, has, has gotten behind uh, quite vehemently over time here. Uh, if you want to call in uh, to discuss congestion pricing, ask Alex a question or make a comment or ask us a question, give us a call, 212-209-2877. That's 212-209-2877 to discuss congestion pricing here. We have Alex for a few more minutes. My question, Alex, um, one of the things that's been brought up by Mayor de Blasio, and he, he might not actually have too much say uh, – going forward about what goes through on the state level if the governor and the legislature uh, are ready to do this. But, um, you know, the mayor has warmed a bit uh, in his rhetoric to to congestion pricing. And as I said earlier, he, you know, sort of 
came around partly based on this idea of not tolling the bridges themselves. But one thing he's talked about is, is and others have is this idea of perhaps there's some sort of hardship um, clause or some way of addressing people who have to drive into the city for various reasons. Maybe it's doctors or hospital visits or doctor's appointments or other such things, or they have disability requirements or things of that nature. Is that anything that's come up in, in your discussions? You know, we certainly looked at that issue a long time ago. I mean, first, let me just say that, you know, those of us who developed the Move New York plan had a pretty strict policy, which is not to start to think about exemptions for certain classes of people, this group or that group or the other, and for the simple reason that it becomes a slippery slope. And the next thing you know, once you've given some one person, one group, an exemption, you've, you've kind of obligated to give everybody an exemption. And the next thing you know, you have no traffic reduction and no real revenue to fix the subways. So our view was just no exemptions. And, and and I think that continues to be kind of our blanket view of things. Uh, that said, you know, as I mentioned earlier, the legislature and the governor are ultimately going to decide what the particulars of this plan look like. And that's going to be up to them to decide whether there are certain uh, groups that might, uh, you know, uh, merit because of some unusual situation, uh, some kind of exemption or maybe just a discount. I, I would be very critical of, of, a, of a blanket exemption for anybody. Uh, um, but maybe if there's a, a discount, uh, that could be possible for certain groups. But again, our view of it is going into the to the process and into the discussion that that's not really where our, our attention should be. Talk for a second, if you can, about the sequencing. Uh, you know, obviously, the argument people make in some parts of the city against congestion pricing is, look, we're very poorly served by transit. We really don't have much of a choice but to drive in. Um, and if you impose this, the toll, these charges before there are new options set up in those neighborhoods, um, I guess that would strengthen their case that it's unfair. Given what we know about what's happening with the Byford plan and the action plan and the idea that the MTA has a fiscal crisis this year and needs to raise fares to secure service at current levels. Is there the opportunity to put those services in before the tolls kick in so that folks have those options? How will the sequencing, do you think, work? Yeah, Jared, I appreciate the question because it also gives me an opportunity to talk about the tremendous benefits of this of this plan, of this proposed plan. But first, people should understand that even if this, the rest of congestion pricing gets enacted in this budget, which is what we hope by April 1st, um, it's going to be probably two years before any tolls actually go into effect. Uh, and that uh, gives the MTA a, a substantial amount of time to start to add additional services, particularly uh, in those underserved parts of the city, like the South Brooklyn, southeastern Queens, northeastern Queens, maybe eastern parts of the Bronx, parts of Staten Island. So yes, the answer is absolutely. We have two years to start to make some of those additional, uh, provide some of those additional bus services and, and other services to get people around. There's lots of other creative ideas about last mile strategies. How do you get people either with local buses or shuttle services to local subway stops that they that maybe aren't walking distance? So I think there's a whole potential there to do something that, that you know, folks in these parts of the city have been complaining about for you know generations, which is we are underserved by transit. I think we have a unique opportunity here to finally change that 
by having the kind of resources necessary to add these kinds of bus services and other services to provide that access. And then I just wanted to kind of take the opportunity, if I could, just to remind folks that what's sure. at stake here. Uh, the, the subway system is falling apart. The bus uh, uh, ridership is going down precipitously for the simple reason the traffic is so bad that the buses barely move. And so people can they realize they can walk faster than, than, they, could, than they can ride a, a bus. A total lack of enforcement um, and, of bus lanes, I'll add. Yeah, lack, yeah, and there's lots of elements to that, by the way, too, as you, as you point out. Uh, There are kind of multiple factors there, but nonetheless, overall traffic congestion is certainly a a serious part of it, as well as kind of, you know, a lack of resources to invest in the system, to add new routes, to add more frequent service, et cetera. So this is an opportunity to to ever service these underserved communities. And then let's not forget the, the kind of core system we've got. We are working on a signaling system that dates back to the 1930s, which is why, you know, millions of riders every single day are stuck underground in these trains or stuck on the platform, on crowded platforms, because the signaling system is so outdated that they have to kind of literally mechanically, you know, with a lot of uh, uh, workers, uh, constantly fix the system kind of on the spot. So by upgrading that system, by getting new subway cars into the system, we can actually have a 21st century system. And if we don't start making those investments now, uh, the system's just going to get worse and worse and worse. And it's going to start to really have uh, uh, obvious effects on our economy and our prosperity and people's ability to, to, you know, move up in the world. Well, Alex Matheson of Moon New York, I think we're going to leave the conversation there. Thanks uh, again for joining us and talking congestion pricing and the landscape ahead in 2019. And I'm sure we'll chat with you again as that uh, conversation moves forward. I look forward to it. Nice to talk to you guys. Thank you. We're back on Max and Murphy on WBAI 99.5, listener-sponsored, non-commercial radio, coming to you live from Brooklyn. I'm Jarrett Murphy from CityLimits.org, joined by Ben Max from GothamGazette.com. Ben, we just finished hearing from Alex Matheson from the Move New York campaign, the uh, sort of uh, advocacy group behind the push for a broad set of transit changes funded by congestion pricing. And he sounded more confident than when we spoke to him several months ago, uh, and perhaps with good reason. With very good reason. I mean, as I said, I think he gave the, you know, he's very astute politically. That's that's pretty much his thing is, is you know, he does the policy, but he's also very attuned to the politics. And he gave a good lay of the land in terms of the politics. You know, the assembly, uh, the state assembly, which has been controlled by Democrats for, for decades, uh, seems to be like it's a place where they'll be able to get support for congestion pricing, although there's questions that remain there. But the Assembly Speaker, Carl Hasty of the Bronx, has been a supporter. And this new state Senate that will be dominated by Democrats, including a very significant portion of the new majority conference, seems very friendly towards it as well. Even people like Senator Mike Generis of Queens, who we've we've had on the show recently, has come around on congestion pricing and a bunch of these new members from the city who replaced the IDC members, uh, I think, are all behind it. And I think he's uh, right to talk about the importance of 
the crisis in framing this. You know, 10 years ago when Mayor Bloomberg did this, it was framed as a, um, a measure to improve air quality uh, for, for children's health, which was morally on target, but was not a very good sell politically, and to reduce traffic, which at that point did not affect um, you know, most people who were thinking about whether to support this or not. Uh, now you have a different situation where you have um, transit crisis and the funding needs in the forefront for just about everybody. And frankly, transit, the traffic around the city has gotten that much worse. That I think you'll find a lot of people who might be more willing to contemplate this than, than, than they were. And one interesting facet of this is what the effects of this will be on traffic well outside the, the central business district where it's gotten increasingly difficult to get around the city just about any time of day, regardless of where you are, um, what this uh, impact will be both politically and uh, operationally uh, on the streets. No, I think I think you say it very well. And I think the biggest that, you know, forget the legislature for a minute, although it's obviously very important, but the, the, the stakes of this crisis and the degree of the crisis with the MTA, what people saw with the subways, you know, which have been stabilized a little bit. And our next guest we'll introduce in a second is going to help us dissect where exactly the subways are at and where the MTA is at. But the crisis that's happened and certainly that, you know, terrible period that people were calling the summer of hell for various reasons. And when there were a couple of, you know, major incidents and and things were looking really bad, got the governor's attention. And this is the number one thing at play, right? If Governor Andrew Cuomo wants to do something, it very often gets done. He is now fully behind congestion pricing. He is promising that he got, you know, one small step through this past session, and he is promising the full thing uh, coming up in 2019. And it's hard to imagine him giving up on it. Could happen, but um, I don't. I just don't see the forces out there beating it. But again, I'm not willing to to guarantee anything. Um, but to to help us move forward in our discussion here of transit in New York City and the surrounding area and what's at play politically. And with policy, we are joined on the line now by Dana Rubenstein, who's a, a senior reporter with Politico New York, who covers transit, transportation, and the MTA and more. Dana, you're on with Max and Murphy. Thanks for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me. So it's great to have you on. Uh, always love reading your work, and folks should obviously check out everything Dana writes at Politico New York. Um, of course. <laughs> so we want to chat with you a little bit because you've also been covering um, this Amazon deal to come to Queens, but I think we'll maybe wait on that until the end of our time together and hopefully get to it. But since we just talked to Alex Matheson from Move New York about the prospects for congestion pricing, and we want to talk with you about the broader MTA picture, um, why don't you just sort of start off giving us your sense of where congestion pricing fits into the larger MTA picture that we're that we're facing right now? Well, first, I I think it's a near certainty that a near certainty that congestion pricing or some form of it will pass through Albany this year. But it's sort of the discussion has progressed so far that we're we've kind of reached the point where now people are wondering what other funding mechanisms will be put in place and what other efforts will be made to sort of um, make the MTA work more efficiently. Because when you look at the the estimates for the next five year capital plan for the MTA are something like sixty billion dollars. And the mo, you know, that when people talk about estimates of the amount of revenue that can be generated by congestion pricing, they're talking about estimates of around one billion dollars a year. So, 
the MTA quite simply doesn't have enough money. And you can argue about its wasteful spending and, and why it is that it doesn't have enough money, but congestion pricing isn't going to cut it. So the real question that people are thinking about now is, A, will the governor exert his substantial leverage to uh, make the MTA run like a more modern and more efficient agency? And B, what other revenue sources will be considered next session in Albany? And those tie together, I would think, because if congestion pricing is implemented, and there will be people who don't like it, there will be folks who grumble and it will take some money out of folks' pocket. If it's implemented and the transit system does not improve, that has the makings of a real political disaster. So they, they got to find that other money. For sure. That's absolutely true. And they have to, you know, arguably think more creatively. Uh, I mean, one thing that London famously did before it imposed as congestion pricing charge was dramatically improve its bus service so that people had other options and had a sense that, you know, their commutes would not suffer so dramatically should congestion pricing be implemented. And people are saying that New York City and the MTA will likely have to do something similar if they want this whole thing to work out. Right. I, I mean, I'd, I'd like to chat a little bit more about the buses maybe in a couple minutes, but but in, but in that still doesn't get really at, at the revenue picture, right? I mean, wh- no. what do, do we have any sense right now? What is plausible i mean the governor has pretty much said some sort of tax increase to to dedicate towards the mta is is a non-starter with him and he's basically i think controlled the the legislature um but into into having the same sort of stance going into the next session so the governor's talking about basically you know making new york city put more towards the mta capital plan i mean is that really what we're probably looking at is is congestion pricing and and then more just coming out of the sort of broad budgets of the city and the state uh, I think that they're looking for something more sustainable. So he, he said, you know, uh, a millionaire's tax, new millionaire's tax is a no-go, as have the leaders of the state legislature. Um, I, 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 you know, I, I, theoretically, they could just raise the rates on all of the existing taxes that fund the MTA. It's not clear. There's this MTA uh, sustainable transit work group. It has a very long name um, that's been meeting every couple of weeks. And, and that is what they're actively discussing is what other uh, proposals can we put forth to address this revenue issue because it's it's not going away. And in, and in somewhat typical Cuomo fashion, that's sort of a group he put together and they're due out with recommendations by the end of the year. And then he'll probably uh, massage those in some way to put forward his recommendations early next year. Is that is that correct? It was a, it was a group that was put into the state budget by the assembly, and that was never created uh, <laughs> until the press started reporting on its absence and the fact that there was a looming end of year deadline. And then all of a sudden, it was created, and now all of a sudden, its work is supposed <laughs> to actually matter. So, right. um, yes, so yes, whatever the results are, they'll be given to Cuomo and probably also leaked, hopefully, and. Um, and then the governor will take it from there. 
So that is obviously sort of the state of play on the financial side. But let's talk about performance because we were just speaking with Alex Matheson. He referenced the summer of hell a couple of years ago now. You know, an emergency declared at that point, uh, a plan to deal with things in the short term, a longer visioned plan. Um, And, you know, we had the snowstorm last week where there was a lot of transit trouble and who knows where the blame lies for that. But what's your picture of what kind of progress, if any, has been made? Are things better? How are they better? What is a, you know, every every commuter has their own individual experience. What's the overall picture, do you think, uh, of performance uh, since this crisis sort of popped onto everyone's radar screen? There is some early evidence that the state of the system is stabilizing, that they've stopped the hemorrhaging, to use the analogy that everyone uses. So, you know, the last two... Um, MTA meetings data was released that showed that major incidents or or incidents that impact 50 or more uh, trains uh, have declined quite a bit as have uh, and on-time performance has improved. So, you know, there there are early signs that things are not getting worse, that they are are sort of stabilizing stabilizing at sort of a a, um, a level of mediocrity or whatever. But, um, But there's a general consensus is that if you want things to improve in some sort of dramatic fashion, then you're going to need to install sophisticated modern signaling on all of the lines, and that's uh, an enormously expensive and arduous endeavor. And that gets to Andy Byford's fast-forward plan. And Correct. and so, uh, for those who haven't been, you know, paying very close attention, uh, the new head of New York City Transit, Andy Byford, he's sort of now in charge of the subways and the buses. Um, he put out this this ambitious plan that is is a ten year timeline, uh, or, it, or long. Fifteen years. Okay, and and so he puts out a, you know this this big overhaul plan um, that could potentially cost thirty, forty, fifty billion dollars. Um, forty billion, right? Up to forty is where we are right now. Right, <laughs> which who, who knows um, how long it'll stay stay there? But um, so so what's the state of play with that plan? I mean, the plan is out there. When do we know if that's the plan that's going to be approved? When do we know if if that'll be funded? You know, how does this sort of play out now? Well, one way to think about it is that over the course of 10 or 15 years, you have multiple five-year capital plans, right? And that is how the MTA is funded, through five-year capital plans. So when you add the first five years of fast-forward to the rest of the system's capital needs and the subway system's just pre-existing state of good repair capital needs, that's where you get to the estimate that over the next five years, you'll need $60 billion. Uh, and that is what that work group is looking at, and okay. that is why they're considering other revenue streams. On an average five-year, you know, for example, the last five-year capital plan cost $30 billion. So it's twice the size of uh, your average capital plan. Um, and the likelihood that it will be funded <laughs> depends entirely on what Albany decides to do next year. And and that is also and, and by the way, it will not be funded by congestion pricing. Congestion right. pricing will, you know, fill some of the out year uh, operating deficits that the MTA is forecasting, thanks to declining ridership and stuff like that. Um, but you're going to need more. And. 
correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is is that these MTA capital plans come together with sort of three streams of funding. There's the dedicated MTA monies that come from riders and dedicated taxes, and then there's some money that, that the state government sort of kicks in, and then there's some money that the city government kicks in. Is that is that a fair way to describe yeah. how those come together? So if yeah. I were- And there's I, also fair box revenue, which can be used to underwrite debt to support the capital plan. Okay. So-, so Similarly to how we were looking a few years ago when they negotiated the last capital plan, this next one is also going to come down to a negotiation between the governor and the mayor. Yes. And if you remember, the last negotiations were really long and ugly and um, kind of left a bad taste in everyone's mouth. So, yeah, no, I remember. And what, yeah, I think that's an underestimated like. part of the, the feud, by the way. I think that, that that one doesn't often get get mentioned, but I think that was a significant, uh, significant portion of, of where things went wrong. Speaking of yeah. feuding, one of the uh, things that characterized the the summer of hell was a lot of a lot of back and forth between the mayor and the then chairman of the MTA, Joe Loda, and he obviously has moved on. And I wanted to talk briefly, uh, Dana. What's your picture of sort of why did why did Loda leave? What's the significance of his departure? And what's coming next? What should we look for to happen next? And Dana, feel free to to take whatever credit you'd like to take for, for some of the issues. No, no. That, not, not for, not for Joe Loda leaving, but sort of some of the questions that were raised. Yeah. So why did Joe Loda leave? I mean, I, I can't pretend to tell you because he has not responded to any of my phone calls or those of other reporters from what I can gather. And I haven't seen his resignation letter to the board or the governor. So with that proviso, everyone expected him to leave after the November elections, and that's just what he did. And the reason they expected him to leave is twofold. Leave is twofold. One is that he was encumbered by all sorts of conflicts of interest issues. He was, while serving as chairman of the MTA, he was also sitting on the board of Madison Square Garden Company. Uh, Madison Square Garden Company runs Madison Square Garden, uh, which sits on top of Penn Station. One of the MTA, the MTA doesn't own Penn Station, but it's Long Island Railroad uh, operates out of there. It's got subway stations, and uh, it was it was just you know uh, things that happen at Penn Station impact Madison Square Garden in a very sort of intimate way. Um, and then secondarily was you know. Uh, his the argument that's advanced by some of his allies that he was he was comfortable leaving because the short-term subway action plan had finally succeeded in stabilizing the system. But um, and we should also yeah, mention Joe Loda has had a very high-powered, demanding full-time job aside from both of the things you mentioned. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I you know, I have no idea how he was able to do it all, um, but. Yeah, he he's uh, kept himself very busy and well, well recompensed. If Chairman, former Chairman Loda is listening and wants to call in and tell us why he left or how he did that, <laughs> or if another listener has a call for our excellent guest, please give us a ring. We have a few minutes left. The number is 212 209 2877. Yeah, give us a call. Uh, let us know your latest thoughts on, on the MTA or, or 
pitch yourself for to be the next chair of the of the MTA as Joe Loda heads out the door. But on a more serious note on that subject, uh, Dana, I mean, what do you the governor is talking a bit about structural change at the MTA. Uh, he's also talking a little bit about not really running the MTA and the MTA isn't isn't what you see before your eyes. We, you know, we're often hearing very different takes from the governor on what the MTA is and how much he controls it. But in some breaths, he's talking about structural reform changes. Do you have any sense um, of what that could look like and what that would mean for new leadership? Well, at this moment in time, it really is just talk, and it's not clear precisely what it means. One thing that he could do that might help uh, sort of lower the MTA's costs, according to people who understand these issues far better than me, is, you know, renegotiate the Transport Workers Union contract when it comes up for renewal, I believe, next year, maybe the year after. Uh, One of the, you know, labor costs comprise like an enormous portion of the uh, the MTA's operating costs, and those numbers are only growing. But as far as structural reform, I, you know, your guess is, guess is as good as mine. Right. I mean, he, he did very briefly a couple of sessions ago, I believe, he proposed, you know, everybody was blaming him for the MTA. He was saying, I don't really control the MTA, but hey, you want to do that? Okay, give me the majority, not just the plurality of appointments to the board. And he sort of threw that proposal out there at the last minute of a legislative session, and it didn't go anywhere and then he never brought it back up in this past session if if my memory serves me correctly um so who knows maybe he maybe he resurrects that idea but again that doesn't doesn't necessarily get us at the the costs and the revenue issues that we're really talking about here that might be more of a management structure um and you know right and since he already effectively controls the mta and it is an extreme rarity if uh, and maybe even something that has never happened during my time covering the MTA. It's an extreme rarity for the MTA board to um, uh, not vote in accordance with his wishes and that of his board members. So, uh, you know, that seemed to me uh, more than anything just a PR ploy. Right. And and what you bring up, though, this labor issue is obviously something that, you know, has come up in a lot of reporting uh, including, you know, the big series that the Times did and something that was part of the discussion in the gubernatorial campaign. You know, Republican Mark Molinaro was talking about trying to get those cost controls down and, you know, share some of the savings with the union and try to figure out ways to sort of do it together. Obviously, he did not win and the TWU has been very supportive of the governor. So what you bring up there is a very outstanding question about whether there's really any appetite on the governor's part to, to renegotiate that contract in any, any sort of way, but he's going to have to, you know, this group that's, that's putting out the recommendations and the governor, they're going to have to figure out some, some plans as you indicate. Right. And soon by the end of the year. Just want to take a couple of minutes. We're coming to the end of our time with uh, Dana Rubenstein of Politico New York. Obviously, big news the past couple of weeks has been the announcement of this Amazon deal, and there's been a transit lens on that. You know, this story about Andy Byford sort of selling the location based on how great the transit was, maybe um, not as great as it actually, or, or, or more great than it actually is. Uh, and then some criticism of the deal and the idea that this is going to add more riders to a transit system or perhaps more taxpayers to support it. What do you think is the smart take on that. What is the connection, if any, the interaction between the Amazon discussion and the transit discussion? Well, I mean, I I am maybe an outlier here, but I just don't think that 
the Amazon deal will impose much of a strain on the transit system. At 25,000 workers are are possibly coming to Queens over the course of 15 years. As Western Queens is really well served by transit. People complain correctly about the 7 train, but the 7 train's been so bad for so long because they've been installing that modern signaling system that I was talking about before and which will supposedly be up and running by the end of the year, thereby giving it additional capacity. Uh, there's a strong possibility that a lot of these workers will live and work in Queens or live in Brooklyn and take the G train to Queens or, I don't know, live out in Long Island and commute to New York City via the LIRR. So I, I, I just, the notion that, you know, there are a lot of um, sort of, uh, there's a lot of strong criticism of the Amazon deal and the wisdom of subsidizing it, but but this notion that it will strain the transit system, I just, you know, I find it hard to buy. I mean, to give some context, every year New York City acquires some 60 to 100,000 new jobs. It's just not, you know, 25,000 right. people is kind of a drop in the bucket. No, I'm I, I'm glad you said that. I, I'm with you. I, I think, uh, you know, strain on the on the seven train, especially given the, the upgrades that are being completed are is, you know, is not one of the top arguments against uh, the Amazon deal. So it's good to hear someone who uh, is very familiar with the ins and outs of, of transit uh, saying such. So Dan, I think we're going to leave it there, but thanks so much for your insights. And obviously um, we'll be following your work at Politico New York to see what's happening next uh, with the MTA and more. All right. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Happy Thanksgiving. All right. Same to you. Bye. Thank you. And we're back on Max and Murphy, 99.5 FM WBAI. We just, speak, we just finished speaking to Dana Rubenstein from Political New York. And Ben, I thought where she started was a great segue, but perhaps a disturbing segue from the Alex Matheson conversation, that congestion pricing, this sort of big political bear people have been wrestling with for a decade, it probably will come, it probably will help, but the transit crisis is not going to be solved, even by that. Right. I mean, we're talking, so first of all, the gridlock on Manhattan streets, the effect that congestion pricing will have on that, I don't think is that much of a given. I don't know. I don't know that congestion pricing is going to have that huge a dent on either end of where it's going to potentially benefit New York. Now, that being said, I don't think there's any reasons really not to do it. Mm -hmm. It seems like the stars are all aligned, that it's moving forward. As Dana said, it's, you know, and and I said, it's, you know, seems like a near guarantee. Um, You never know what could come up the works in Albany, a couple of rogue senators and the whole thing is in trouble. But um, clearly there would be some positive benefits both to the MTA funding situation and the congestion issue. So, yes, but on both fronts, there's other things that need to happen as well. And that's some of what you know we've been reporting on this week and, and uh, at other times uh, in addition. Uh, she talked briefly at the end there about Amazon. I think her points about uh, the transit um, concerns were right on target. I don't think it's the strongest argument against the deal. Obviously, there have been a lot of arguments for and against the deal. And what I'm wondering is sort of what goes, what goes on after this week? You know, is this 
there is there room for discussion? Is there room for compromise? Um, you know, is there room within the process to even really have that discussion? Uh, kind of remains to be seen. I feel. Well, you you wrote a piece uh, with your take on the Amazon deal, so I want you to give listeners the the short version of that, and they can find the long version at, at citylimits.org. But let me just say real quick, you know, the but the other thing at play here with the Amazon deal is that Cuomo's talking up that relates to the MDA, MTA funding situation is part of this is supposed to bring in billions of dollars in new tax revenue to New York State that can then be used for things like funding the MTA. And, you know, there are also elements of this memorandum of understanding with Amazon to dedicate payments in lieu of taxes towards local infrastructure and projects and such. So that's a lot more to discuss another time. But go ahead, take us out with your your take on the Amazon deal. Uh, well, it's complicated. Uh, I would say there's um, uh, some big, big doubts and questions both about the deal, about the process, and about, frankly, Amazon itself and, and what kind of a corporate citizen it is. Uh, but that is a great thing to read on citylimits.org, <laughs> on citylimits.org and gothamgazette.com, a lot under this Agenda 2019 series. We've done criminal justice. Justice. We've done transit. Next week is housing. Tune in here to hear that next Wednesday. Come to our sites to see more. And uh, we're going to thank Reggie Johnson behind the glass and thank everyone for listening and wish everyone a happy Thanksgiving. You've been listening to Max and Murphy on WBAI. Keep listening. Have a great holiday. Happy. 